At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. This month, it'll be six years since a gunman killed 49 people and injured more than 50 others at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Once again, Americans are wrestling with the horror of gun violence in the aftermath of recent mass shootings at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Rallies are being planned across the country this weekend by March for Our Lives, the organization that emerged from the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, South Florida, four years ago. Attempts at the national level to pass significant gun control legislation, such as universal background checks or restrictions on the types of rifles that are often used in mass shootings, have failed due to opposition from Republican lawmakers. But there is still some hope for bipartisan gun reform. And amid the calls for legislative action, there's also renewed focus on laws that Florida passed after Parkland, including so-called red flag laws to temporarily remove guns from people deemed to pose a threat to themselves or others. We'll hear from Tampa Bay residents about what needs to change to stem the tide of gun violence, and we'll talk with St. Petersburg Police Chief Tony Holloway about what works and what doesn't when it comes to curbing gun violence. Later in the show, with a special session on property insurance in the rearview mirror, can homeowners expect some relief from skyrocketing premiums? Tampa Bay Times reporter Lawrence Maurer explains what lawmakers did and didn't do in the special session. First, though, WUSF reporter Stephanie Colombini spoke to attendees at a rally against gun violence in Tampa's Curtis Hickson Park last Friday. Retired teacher Raquel Rivera was there with Sherry Paget and fellow members of the Democratic Women's Club of Pasco County. They talked about the impact of shootings on students and teachers, while Gail Powell Cope with Moms Demand Action in Hillsborough County said Florida has taken steps to improve gun safety and she hopes more can be done. We had to cover up the, the panels, do the whole drill, duck and be quiet, just like those kids have been saying on online. The, this little girl that was saying, oh yes, the paper on the window, you have to be really quiet, let's have a contest, who's the quietest? Do we have to go through that? That should not be on them and on us and the teachers. And saying that we have to harden down and, and have weapons? No, that's not what a school is for. I'm here because I'm sick and tired of seeing these shootings. These kids in Uvalde, they were massacred. They couldn't even identify some of them because these guns mutilate people. That should not be a gun that anybody, a civilian, should have. Everybody needs to register. That gets a gun has to register the gun. They have to get a permit. They have to go through a safety course. You know, people, people want to go to the grocery store and feel safe. They want to go to their church or their synagogue or in a park like this. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, we can we can keep the momentum up. And this is the first time that I can remember Republicans and Democrats have been talking to each other about gun safety legislation at the federal level. So, you know, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, but we're not going to we're not going to end either. That's the other message. We're not going to give up until we solve our nation's gun problems. The crowd included students too, like 16-year-old Miguel Inoa, president of the Students Demand Action chapter at Hillsborough High School, and Lindsay Taylor, who's heading off to college. One thing I really want to see is change in the gun laws, obviously. 
because like in our community there's so much gun violence and in schools we always have the lockdown drills and I know people like myself I have anxiety I like not really bad but like I get scared sometimes because like you never know so I know for a fact there's so so many students that are scared and like bothered by the idea that we constantly have to go into lockdown once a month and then sit in our hard corner and sit there for five ten minutes and it's kind of scary. I'm here because I have lots of siblings and I know multiple people, uh, a lot of my friends who have been subject to gun violence and I don't know anyone in the school system who has not felt the wave of fear that has been instilled in them after a big cannon or a door closing too much worried about anything that could be happening or having to hide and I'm ready for change and all of these people out here they are here to make this ripple effect in our communities to start getting things done. Others talked about the need for support for grassroots efforts to curb gun violence and more resources for mental health. Johnny Johnson is with the organization Rise Up for Peace while Marquita Robinson works with the youth mentor program Helping Through the Hurt. What's not working we're not listening. Laws is not being changed. We need more support at ground level for grassroots organizations to be affected, the ones that are making these personal relationships with families and victims of the senseless gun violence. We're allowing the lawmakers to get away with it. We need to uh, get out and vote, hold them accountable, and they work for us. So we have to hold their feet to the fire. Most of America wants sensible gun laws. It shouldn't be no one organization holding the whole country hostage. So again, we need us as a community, a country to stand up. Stand your ground, it need to be revisited. And, and if, if it's such a good law, there shouldn't be no reason that we shouldn't sit down and discuss it. But uh, statistics shows that stand your ground needs to be revisited. We would like to see something change in the mental health piece with this whole um, gun violence thing because these kids are traumatized and when you don't give them some help it's just going to keep repeating itself and the children, when they're traumatized and a lot of things are going un untreated and um, childhood trauma is a huge thing. And some of those at the rally had lost loved ones to gun violence. Maria Guzman was there with her son's fiance. She said her son was killed last April. And Annie Kwarting founded an organization called JJ Forever to teach entrepreneurial skills to kids in memory of her 18-year-old son Antonio JJ Maguire Jr., who was shot and killed in 2020. The wrong people are getting those guns, you know? And people need to be more aware of who they're selling their guns to, you know? That's, the, that's my thing on that. Um, my son, her fiancé, he was murdered not even a month. Well, it's been a month now. So that's my son. And I think if people are more aware of where do they leave their guns and who they sell it to, they, we could make a little bit more peace, you know? It's, it's a hard thing to not know if your child is coming home because they went to the park or they went to school, you know, it, it all runs hand in hand. It, it really is the same. I can't say one is more important than the other because I fear sending my children to school just like I do sending them to the grocery store or sending them outside to play. Um, I just want us as a community to come together. We definitely have to get back to the village raising the children. Um, that would help. 
That was Annie Kwarteng, one of the attendees at a rally against gun violence in Tampa last Friday. She spoke to WUSF's Stephanie Colombini. You can find more of her reporting and photographs from the event on our website. Well, Tony Holloway is the St. Petersburg police chief. He says some policies that have been rolled out to curb gun violence are effective, like Florida's so-called red flag laws or risk protection orders, which contemporarily remove guns from people deemed a danger to themselves or others. But he says other changes may be better dealt with at the federal level. So in the aftermath of shootings in Uvalde and in Buffalo, there's renewed scrutiny on the weapons that were used, AR-style semi-automatic rifles, and who can acquire them. And there are also calls to address mental health issues, among other things. Chief, what do you think would make the biggest difference in this debate over gun safety? First of all, I think we need to look at the mental health care. Then we need to look at the type of weapons that are being used, the magazines that are being sold. And then also, how do we make sure that every law enforcement throughout the nation has a database so they can check it? Is that a federal issue or a state issue? Like, who who takes the lead on this? I believe that would be a federal issue who would have to take the lead on it here, just so we could make sure that all the information is shared with everybody correctly. What about the age, too? Because that was one uh, change that the state of Florida made in the aftermath of the shooting in Parkland was to raise the age at which you could acquire uh, those kind of weapons. Would that make a difference, do you think? I think that'll be a great starting point. Uh, I mean, you can't get a handgun until the age of 21, so why should you be able to, to get this type of weapon when you're at 18? I think everybody should look and say, okay, let's just wait and let this person mature a little bit more and get more information. Other states also in recent weeks have been looking at Florida's red flag laws, which were passed after the shooting in Parkland four years ago. And Second Amendment advocates on the other side of the equation and some law enforcement officials say that it gives the government too much power and doesn't respect due process. What do you think about these red flag laws? Is, is the law working and is it something that other states should be looking at to apply in, in, their, in their states? I think they should be looking at it, and it does work. Uh, we're very fortunate here. Our sheriff is the person that the program runs through. Uh, but when the officers go to a call and there's someone that's going through a mental issue or some type of violent felony, and they know there's weapons in the house, then they can go through the RPO or risk protection order to make sure that those guns are taken out of homes at least for a year. So if the person has some type of mental issue, they can get that type of help or someone's going through another issue like that cool down period. So it helps. It's working. You take the guns, you take the ammo, and now that person is getting help. It's not an easy access for that person. I was reading over the City of St. Petersburg's Police Department 2020 annual report, and or 2021 rather, in that there were 36 instances in which risk protection orders were used in St. Pete. Do you think that number is likely to rise this year? Well, I can tell you as of uh, today, we've had uh, nine issued. So we're probably right on track for the uh, same same number. But, but it's just good to have that tool, so to speak, in your toolbox, so that when you do go to those type of calls and you do have those type of incidents, that you're able to take that gun away that is not readily accessible to them, and they can't go out and find another weapon. What about follow-up then? I mean, is there the kind of follow-up there should be for people who are served with these orders and have firearms taken away and 
is there more that could be done to address whatever it is that puts them in that high-risk category in the first place, aside from access to firearms? You know, that's a good question. I, I don't think there is. Uh, we should look at that. If we are taking the uh, weapon from someone that's going through a mental crisis, we should be making sure that they're getting that type of help. So if they do uh, try to get their weapon back in a year, that it can be some type of documentation to say that for the past year, this person has been getting help. I know they have to go to the court system to prove it also, but as law enforcement or the community, maybe we should have something in place also that we're tracking it. And I mean, just back to that original question I asked, what do you say to people who say that laws like this really don't respect uh, what's written into the Constitution and people's uh, rights under that? Everybody has a right to the Second Amendment, but this is also making sure that there's no harm to the person or someone else and just someone that just committed a violent felony. It works. It, it, you're trying to take that gun away from that person so they don't have that opportunity to hurt someone else or to hurt themselves. And that's what it's all about, trying to find an opportunity so it doesn't happen to someone. Will it solve the whole problem? No, it does not. But at least it's a starting point. Chief Holloway, in the last couple of weeks too, there's been talk about uh, gun buyback programs. Do you think those are effective? No, in my opinion, they're not effective because you're going to get the type of guns that people are no longer using, uh, 22, 25s uh, caliber weapons, or they don't work. Uh, no one's going to sell you or give you back an AR-15 or, or even a handgun uh, at the price that uh, we would pay because they could get more more off the street. No one's going to give you an AR-15 for two or $300. Could a buyback program work for something like high-capacity magazines, which is one of the things that people point to when it comes to ideas or solutions for curbing gun violence? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm definitely going to look into that because that sounds like a good idea to, to possibly get some of those 50 and 100-round magazines off the street or extended magazines. I don't know what the cost is, but maybe we can get those off that could curb some of our gun violence. Chief Holloway, is there some consensus among police chiefs that you talk to about solutions to mass shootings and gun violence in general? There is. Uh, we talk about the high-capacity magazines. We talk about the mental health care crisis that people are going through. Uh, how do we take these guns off the street when we know someone is going through a crisis or a violent crime has happened? And to make sure that they're just where they're not able to hurt that person or hurt anyone else else on the streets. There's been quite a bit of criticism of the Uvalde Police Department for the length of time that their officers waited to get into the school and take out the shooter at Robb Elementary. I wonder how officers in St. Petersburg are taught to respond to such a nightmare situation. The protocol for active shooting is you you go to the where the shooting is being taken place in either you neutralize the target or you put the person in custody, but you will continue to move forward uh, until the active shooter is no longer actively shooting at anyone. Even if your officers are outgunned, like how do you get around that problem? Well, you figure out a way to get to the target and you move forward. Uh, being outgunned, hopefully of your the police department has the right equipment, uh, but whatever you have on you at that time, that's what you go into that scene with. How does the St. Petersburg Police Department work with local school law enforcement? We work with them quite closely. We have officers in our middle schools 
and high schools. We have a guardian program for the elementary schools. Uh, we train together. So we have uh, radios that uh, we can talk to not only the officers, but the officers can also talk to the administrators at the school via a, a radio. Tony Holloway is the Chief of Police for the City of St. Petersburg. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Florida Matters. Coming up, lawmakers were called back to Tallahassee two weeks ago for a special session to deal with the chaotic property insurance market. So what did they achieve and what does it mean for homeowners? The conversation continues in just a moment. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Lawmakers were called back to Tallahassee two weeks ago for a special session to deal with the chaotic property insurance market. Insurance industry watchdogs have been sounding the alarm as insurance companies have shared customers and premiums have skyrocketed. So what did lawmakers achieve and what does it mean for homeowners? Well, Lawrence Mauer is the Tampa Bay Times Tallahassee correspondent. Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So homeowners in Florida wanted meaningful reform to stop skyrocketing insurance premiums and stop insurance companies from ditching customers. Did the special session deliver that? Uh, yes and no. If you're looking for some kind of relief from your rates in the short term, uh, like anytime soon, you're not going to get it from what lawmakers passed. Uh, then again, there was not a whole lot lawmakers could do to immediately lower rates. They did, however, address one of the main problems that homeowners are experiencing with this insurance crisis, and that's people getting kicked off their policies or having trouble finding new policies because of the age of their roofs. What insurance companies are basically doing is saying, homes with older roofs are too risky, and so we're not going to renew your policy here. We're going to make you replace your roof if you if you want to get coverage with us. What uh, the lawmakers did is basically tell those insurance companies that you can't kick someone off just because of the age of their roof if that roof is less than 15 years old. Uh, and if you have a roof that's 15 years or older, you can kind of, you can have an inspection. And when you get this inspection done, they can determine whether or not your roof has five years of life left in it. And if it does, then the insurance company can't kick you off or refuse you coverage just because of that, the age of that roof. One of the other things that came out of the special session was the revival of a program to give residents up to $10,000 to harden their homes against storms. How is this program going to work? Well, we don't know the details yet on how this will work, but you know, this is basically a revival of a program that existed from about 2006 to 2008. This was, again, a program that lawmakers created to help with an insurance crisis back then. And the idea is that that the state will give you money. First of all, you have an inspection of your home. The state will provide a free inspection. The inspector will come out, determine like what might be eligible to upgrade your home. For example, the inspection might find that, oh yeah, you, you could do well by getting a, a reinforced garage door or by getting a better roof or things like that. And you could apply for the state to get reimbursed for that up to $10,000. And the way the program is kind of set up is that for every $1 you spend upgrading your home, you could get it reimbursed for $2 for this by the state. Now, the way the program is set up this time is it's pretty narrow. It's only going to apply to homes that are in the wind, the wind debris zone, which is kind of a U-shaped zone that covers, frankly, only about half of Hillsborough County. Um, but it goes, it's basically a U-shape from Tampa Bay 
down and across to the other side of the state and the northwest part of the panhandle. Basically, it's only going to apply to about 11,500 homes at the most, probably. Those are the most amount of homes that could get the full $10,000. You know, it could provide some relief. Basically, when you get these home upgrades, you can tell your insurer you got these. And there's the state has some of these upgrades laid out in statute that you could get discounts from your insurer. So that could be some kind of relief. But, you know, the last time this program existed, homes weren't actually getting upgraded until, you know, a year later after this program rolled out. So it's not like this is a quick fix. Yeah, and this program was in place back in 2006. I understand there was a bit of fraud or some inconsistencies with the way the program was applied as well, and there was more money in it last time. So whatever they have in place now is a bit of a compromise, in fact. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, first of all, there was a really long waiting list. It was very popular last time. That program, it eventually upgraded like 35,000 homes and provided something like hundreds of thousands of inspections, which are all good things. And some people got some real use out of it. However, you know, some people were not satisfied. They would get the checks back from the state. The checks didn't match what the state had promised. So there were questions about that. Insurance companies, you know, said that some of these inspections were not real. And so there are questions about that. And, you know, that it's, it's obviously there were, there were problems with it the last time. And we don't know really anything about how it's going to be administered this time. This just passed within the last couple of weeks. So we don't know yet, you know, the, the Department of Financial Services is going to be administering this like they did last time. But the last time they contracted with, you know, with providers to do these inspections, and we don't know how that's going to look. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of question marks about it. Now, there was also some relief out of the special session for insurance companies, especially those that were on the verge of going bankrupt because they couldn't get reinsurance. What is the state going to do to help those companies? The state has been watching, oh, anywhere from half a dozen to a dozen companies, insurance companies that are, like you said, on the verge of going insolvent. And they're really under a tight crunch to buy what's known as reinsurance, which is essentially insurance that insurance companies buy ahead of storm season to help pay out claims in the event of a storm, a major storm. And usually they buy this on the private market. And the problem is that reinsurance companies are saying these companies, these these dozen or so companies are just too risky to insure, to provide insurance for. And so what the state did is create a $2 billion fund for these companies to buy this reinsurance. Now, the, the big question is, how much of a fix will this be? Will this actually save some of these companies? There's been questions that these companies are in such poor financial position that this won't save them. However, there is, if you're, if you happen to be with a company that does tap into this, the state legislature did require those companies that use this to immediately lower rates for people. It, it's obviously a big question. How much would they actually lower rates? How much of an effect will this have? You know, this was basically kind of a bailout for these companies. And that was kind of the more the motivating factor here. Right. And when these companies have gone insolvent in the past, what's happened to those homeowners is oftentimes they've been sent over to citizens' property insurance, which is kind of seen as the insurer of last resort for homeowners. Do you get the sense, Florence, that what was achieved in this special session will stem the flow of those customers being driven across to citizens' property insurance? Potentially, yes. Um, you know, really this, what this session was, was about was about stabilizing the, the homeowner's insurance market. 
it's a big question mark. I mean, Citizens has has grown big time <laughs> by hundreds of thousands of policies in the last 18 months. They're going to surpass a million policies, which is still far away from their peak. You know, they at one point they had like a million and a half policies, uh, you know, a decade and a half or so ago. And Citizens is basically functioning like it should. Uh, it's It was created to provide stability in the marketplace so that homeowners have a place to go. However, you know, there are homeowners who are not eligible for citizens. You know, if your home is is worth, I think the the cap right now is 700,000, it might be 800,000 with citizens. You know, they won't citizens won't insure you. And so the, for those people who can't find insurance on the private market, who can't go with citizens, they're going to have to find insurance somewhere else, probably on the surplus lines market, which is you know, not the same as being with a traditional carrier for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and that's that's got to be a bit of a worry too, that sort of cap on the value of homes, given the fact that the median home price in Florida is just climbing and climbing, right? I mean, it's over 400000 now, which is a pretty startling increase from even in the last 12 months. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And especially in South Florida, I, I think the median home sale was 550 in Miami-Dade and about the same in uh, Broward. That's no joke. There's been a lot of talk too leading up to the special session about litigation, and we've been told that that's a big reason why Florida's insurance market is such a mess. Did lawmakers do much to address that? Yes, they did. Uh, yeah, insurance companies have been complaining that, that the number of lawsuits against them and kind of fraudulent attorneys who are filing frivolous lawsuits and whatnot, uh, they did. They put a number of caps in place on what attorneys can receive in fees and compensation in these lawsuits that's kind of meant to make these lawsuits less lucrative for attorneys. That is not a short-term fix. That's a long-term issue. And frankly, it remains to be seen if that is even a fix at all. While the number of lawsuits has gone way up, I mean, that's there's no question about that uh, in recent years against insurance companies. You know, the the big question is how much is this actually hurting insurance companies? I mean, how much are these lawsuits actually hurting them? The homeowner's insurance market is very complex. There's a lot of things going on that are driving up rates. And litigation is just one of those things. Lawmakers don't have any estimates. They didn't do any studies to see what their legislation will actually do to the marketplace. So we really don't know what's going to happen. And there's a high likelihood that they're back here this fall after the elections passing more reforms. Yeah, to your point, Lawrence, lawmakers spent just three days in the special session, so they didn't really have a lot of time to dig into the root causes of the insurance market's woes, did they? No, and they really didn't. In fact, each chamber, the House and the Senate, was really only in session for 48 hours, which is, I mean, they had no presentations from state agencies, including the state's insurance regulator. This wasn't a fact-finding session at all. And frankly, this is the main problem with this insurance market is that nobody really knows what's going on. Insurance companies do know. They blame litigation. But frankly, there's big questions about how insurance companies have been spending their money. You know, they've been they were making money hand over fist for years. You know, we haven't had a storm since 2018. Before that, we had a, a nice long break between storms. And we really just don't know why these companies are going under. We don't know really what's going on with rates because, you know, there's just a lot of factors here and there hasn't been any kind of wholesale studies of what's actually going on. So what's the takeaway from the special session then? Is the insurance market still in a mess of trouble? And what does that mean for Floridians long term? 
uh, I would say the, the, the takeaways are, A, your rates aren't going to go down anytime soon. B, if they don't go down, they may not go up as much as they might have. And it's really just a waiting game. You know, did these changes work? Are more of these companies going to go under? Basically more question marks. And it's really going to be pressure on the legislature to actually come up with a way to create a stable homeowners insurance market, which they've really failed to do. Lawrence Mauer is the Tampa Bay Times Tallahassee correspondent. Lawrence, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. 